Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. Hello, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show, joined in the studio, as I am a couple of times every month, by Tanya Mack from Women's Telehealth. Hello, C.W. It's holidays are here. We are just talking about that. hard to believe it's already rolling into the holidays. We're going to be talking about a topic that, for those of us around the Southeast, is a common one, uh, getting into diabetes and what hospitals and health systems and academic institutions are doing to try to combat, one, the growing problem, because I've got a couple of statistics here about how big the problem actually is, but then that's combined with a limited access to resource in many places. So how do you manage it? Because patient engagement is a big part of actually successfully modifying that disease because there's a lot of things the patient needs to do. And real-time data, if you're only seeing or talking to the patient every few months or so, it's very difficult to truly manage some of those chronic diseases like diabetes. Right. So as you know, diabetes is one of the major chronic problems in the United States that we have as just a health issue. And it's funny, we're talking around holiday season where there's a lot of sugary, (laughs) bad diet kind of things around. But um, a few weeks ago, well, maybe a month ago, I had a chance to visit the University of Mississippi's Medical Center, where they have one of the largest uh, telehealth centers in the United States. And Um, I was able to speak with some of the people over there about a very unique program that they have that they completed a pilot for that had to do with remote patient monitoring at home for diabetic patients and the results that they've seen. So I want to talk just a minute about diabetes, and then I will introduce our guest, who is the administrator of that center, Mr. Michael Adcock. But just to start with, a couple of things I think are driving this CW. One is patient monitor. Patients are demanding like real-time information to their data, mobile health, mHealth. Um, everybody wants more control, instant access, access to their records. They really, I think uh, there's a healthcare consumerism movement to actually be a lot more involved and part of the team than just their doctor telling them what to do. The other thing that I think is happening is in the past several years, we've had this surge of technology improvements that has allowed our reach to go from hospital to doctor's office to now home. And as we've talked with other guests before, telemedicine uh, and platforms are a way where we can now um, monitor a lot of different kinds of care in a home. So we're going to be talking specifically with uh, Mr. Michael Adcock today, who's the administrator of the University of Mississippi Medical Center's uh, Center for Telehealth. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Michael and his center. Michael also has been in healthcare a long time. He has his master's in nursing. He's been vice president of clinical services and support at Halifax Regional Medical Center in North Carolina. He's been chief operating officer at West Jefferson Medical Center in Louisiana, and now he's at Mississippi. So, Michael, you're well-versed on the South on our healthcare issues Mm -hmm. down here from lots of different perspectives. Yes, I've been in, in multiple 
areas of healthcare administration, but also started out as a nurse. I won't even say how long ago, but I've been Don't in, out in yourself, part please. of healthcare for quite a while. <laughs> That's great. And let me just tell you a little bit about the um, University Center for Telehealth there in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I've been in telehealth for the last five years myself, but what he has and his team have been able to create there is quite astounding. Um, they do over 500,000 patient encounters. They have connected over 218 clinical sites, and they represent over 300 medical, or 30, sorry, excuse me, 30 medical centers. So, and a little bit uh, about their program also, it's been estimated that the cost of diabetes in the United States exceeds $2.7 billion. That's a lot of money. And from what I understand, if you look across our United States population, that over 9% of our population is actively diabetic right now. And then there's another equally large group of people that is pre-diabetic. And that group is even larger. So it's we're, we're talking about a significant problem affecting many, many people, and it's only growing. So. Right. So, Michael, let's have you weigh in. I know diabetes is one of Mississippi's primary healthcare problems, but what was the catalyst that actually drove you to create the Diabetic Telehealth Network, and tell us about tell us about how you guys did that. I think that CW mentioned it earlier. It is um, a re- diabetes is certainly a huge problem in Mississippi. We're thirteen percent of our adult population has diabetes and obesity. We're I, li- I like to tease a lot and say that Mississippi is really really good at some of the things that aren't so good for us, and not so good at the things that are. So I think we, we have, can all relate to have, that. Yes, especially in the South. Everywhere I've ever worked and lived, we've had that same issue. So Mississippi has 53 of our counties that are more than 40-minute drive from specialty care. So we have specialists in Mississippi. The unfortunate part is the majority of the specialists live in the urban areas, and the majority of our population lives in the rural areas. Right. So, so trying to connect those two has, has been an issue for us. And we also wanted to test and see if if remotely managing diseases in patients' homes would actually be successful. And we are blessed with the Mississippi Delta, which is an area that is severely under-resourced and isolated and has um, high prevalence, even higher than the the Mississippi prevalence of diabetes and congestive heart failure and multiple chronic diseases. So we wanted to see if we could make this work in an area that needs it the most. And we figured if we could make it work in the Mississippi Delta, we could make it work anywhere in the U.S. So so a rep- that's why try, that's why we trialed it in Sunflower County, Mississippi. Yeah, trying to get a replicable, scalable model, if you would. Right, connectivity. Yeah. You know, testing connectivity in some of the most rural areas of the state, right. and um, in an area where technology has not been prolific throughout the throughout the area. So we wanted to test it in an, in the harshest environment possible in our state. What did you find with regards to that group of folks when we're talking? probably many of them being in a low, lower socioeconomic space from the perspective of having devices that they need to be able to utilize the the telehealth component of it. Do they have the things that they need from either a computer or mobile devices or telephony that, that you would need to conduct that kind of monitoring? No, and that's why our model has and in the diabetes telehealth network model consisted of sending them the technology that they needed because the majority of them did not have it. 
many of them actually had never even used technology, did not have internet in the home, did not have a computer, did not have a smartphone. So we actually send everything that they need to their home and make sure that it's connected through cellular technology because the majority of them as well did not have Wi-Fi. So you have to make sure that you, you get them everything that they're going to need or the, the adherence to the program is very small. Were you able to maybe partner with uh, another enterprise in that kind of space to be able to reduce some of the cost of being able to provide something, you know, that sort of equipment? I would imagine that's a bit of a, uh, a challenge to be able to uh, support all of those folks that would need that type of equipment. It is. We were actually lucky to have multiple partners in this diabetes pilot in the Mississippi Delta um, the health system up there worked with us to identify the patients and to make those connections because, as you're aware, when you get into rural areas, especially in the south, you know, people that come from the outside aren't necessarily always trusted. So North Sunflower Medical Center was a, a great partner with us. Seaspire, which is our um, local telecom provider, it's actually the largest private telecom provider in the country, partnered with us to provide the sailor connectivity and actually, not just the data plans that they provide, they also made sure that we had the connectivity and the towers that we needed to provide the services. So they've been growing connectivity throughout our state and worked with us on this project. Care Innovations was, at the time, a GE Intel company. It was a joint venture. They partnered with us to provide the actual technology. So, so they provided the tablets and the um, glucometers. Yeah, so how did you get all of those people around the table to actually create this telehealth network? Everyone sees the need, obviously. Everybody knows that there's a need. We have had a great relationship with the Division of Medicaid in Mississippi and also Mm -hmm. the the governor of Mississippi. So the governor helped us get these groups around the table as well as people have recognized our program for a while. I mean, we've we've been providing telehealth services since 2003 in our state. So we've got a reach across our state and have been doing a lot of innovative things so getting GE and Intel and Care Innovations to the table was not that difficult. Um, C Spire has been a partner of ours for a very long time, so they were easier to pull to the table. Everyone sees the need and saw the benefit of benefit of this if it works. So mm-hmm. they were all willing to come to the table, and they all put up their own you know partnership dollars. They all covered their own expenses. It wasn't a thing where we got a grant or anything like that. Everybody came together and put in their own resources to see if this would work. That's awesome. Well, let's. we've talked a little bit about technology, and we'll revisit it, but why don't we start back to, at the beginning about how the basics of your um, diabetic telehealth program works. Okay. So the basics as far as um, the patients go. So one of the big issues that we have is identifying patients. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots and lots of healthcare data out there. You know, finding the patients that would that would benefit most from this program is the, is the first step. So we we find the patients that are appropriate for the program. That could be in the diabetes pilot. It was actually done by um, North Mississippi. I mean, North Sunflower Medical Center. They work to help us identify these patients. Once the patients are identified, the providers write an order. That this is how it works now. The providers write an order for the service for remote patient monitoring. Our center then works with the patient, the provider, and the insurance company to ensure that the patient qualifies for that service and that it's covered by the insurance. So, so that's Michael, how it works now. is it their PCP provider, or do they have to have an endocrinologist? Oh, no. It's it's their yeah. primary care provider. Because the whole idea Majority is you don't have the specialist. Yeah. Exactly. And what we found after, I'll go back to the study in just a second, but what we found after the study is the majority of patients, once they are under the care of an endocrinologist, actually do fairly well. They're able to maintain their A1C. And 
do what they need to do. Um, so these are the majority of these patients, by far and away, over 90% of these patients come from their primary care provider. Mm-hmm. And like research, did you, to get them in the program or identify them, did you have inclusion or exclusion criteria or? And, we did. There okay. were there were multiple criteria. This is an act. This the Diabetes Telehealth Network is actually an IRB approved study. So there are multiple criteria, um, age requirements. The limiting factor in this study, believe it or not, was actually the fact that we wanted to focus it on Sunflower County. So the limiting factor in this was finding you know enough patients in Sunflower County that were uncontrolled diabetics. Not as hard as you would think, but yeah. you know once you have that pool of patients, then convincing them to participate is the next step. So when you say uncontrolled, did their blood sugar have to be over a certain level of consistency? Were you looking at like blood sugar levels? We, we were looking at A1C and, okay. and seeing what their A1C was. Okay. It had to be over a certain level. Um, we were looking at their hospitalizations and ER visits. I mean, these were patients, a lot of these patients at, during the study weren't routinely seeing a primary care provider, certainly weren't seeing an endocrinologist because there's not one anyone near anywhere near them. Mm-hmm. So those there, there were multiple inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. So certainly the hospital probably is the premier uh, healthcare resource in that area. But were you able to reach any patients that were never hospitalized? Like once the PCPs knew that they were there, um, even if they had patients that were not well controlled but didn't require hospitalization, were any of those patients included? Yes, they were, and we actually—I mean, we we put out radio ads and television okay, ads. So you had a whole marketing one of the, in the community, as, as, as you well know, in the South. If you really want to get, if you really want to reach patients in their environment, you go to their church. So we went to church and 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 reached out to people in their churches and had the the hospital representatives go with us and you know providers in the area. We reached out in every way we could. We wanted to maximize how many patients were we were able to reach through this program. That's awesome. And do you handle both adult and pediatric patients? We do now, yes. This this study was strictly adult. But okay. yes, we have adult you and pediatric patients. kind of expanded patients. it? We have. We've, um, not just diabetes. We have adult and pediatric diabetes. We also manage heart failure, hypertension, mm-hmm. um, getting ready to go into asthma, congestive, I mean, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. There are, uh, there are a, a number of issues that can be addressed in the home if you have the right technology and the right staff on the on the on mm-hmm. our end, mm-hmm. so um, we've started talking with CW a little bit about how you got, like how you did the assessment on what resources the patient had at home. Like you mentioned, some patients had internet connectivity, some patients did not. How does that work? Like when a patient's walk us through when a patient's identified and they pass the criteria, and then they're accepted into the program. Then what happens? Okay. Is there phone conversation to assess what they have and they don't? Or what? what is kind of the next step? There is. One of the first steps that we do now, we actually have access to the um, the cellular connectivity and the cellular signal strength database that, that CSPIRE has. Mm-hmm. So we actually put in the address of the patient wherever they're going to be into the database to see if they have um, at least 3G connectivity through cellular. Mm-hmm. So if that doesn't work, we go into we we continue down that path until we can't achieve that. In most cases, I can tell you that we've had less than one percent that fall out because of connectivity. Well, that's so encouraging. That, that, it is. I mean, Mississippi and CSPIRE and the FCC has worked with us on these different things, trying to improve the cellular connectivity. That's really right now the only way that we can make this work because you know Wi-Fi is dependent on multiple factors. One, somebody having Wi-Fi. Two, them continuing to pay the bills. Three, 
you know, there's there's so many technology issues when you're dependent on someone else's their own Wi-Fi account. So mm-hmm. if we do this through cellular connectivity, we're able to manage all of those pieces ourselves. You don't have to worry about a the the connectivity dying because someone didn't pay a bill or any of that. We we manage all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say well, you ping it and they have connectivity. Now you need to get like a glucometer in the home and kind of get them some training going. How does that happen? Right. So we send them, after we've communicated with them and they're approved for the program, we ship them a kit. Um, Care Innovations actually ships the kit from California. It arrives by FedEx to their door. It includes a tablet, which right now is an iPad mini that has a cellular package in it. The data is already paid for and a Bluetooth glucometer. So the glucometer and the, the tablet come in the kit. As soon as they get that kit and they open it, they have instructions to call us, and we walk them through setup, and it is it is extremely patient-friendly. So it is, it is intuitive. It is very easy to set up. There are very rare, very rarely do we ever have to go out to someone's home. We do. We have a service. If, if they can't get things up and going, we will go to their home and help them set it up, but most of it's done on the phone with us walking through the program on the iPad. Mm-hmm. So everything is everything is um is synced and the Bluetooth is all connected to the to the tablet already. Everything is paired mm-hmm. so that when they get it they're literally pushing a button. Yeah, That's it's all configured. To to it comes to the, the door button. configured. So do most of these patients are they already familiar um with blood sugar testing? So you're not really testing you're not really teaching that capability. You're really teaching them more the remote home monitoring and aspect of it. Correct. The okay. majority of them have, have, have well, they, they all have to have a um, diagnosis of diabetes mm-hmm. to get on the program. So they've already, at the very least, most of them have been admitted to the hospital because that's when they find out they have diabetes. But they have gotten training on how to do the blood sugar testing mm-hmm. because we provide right now we provide the glucometer in the kit mm-hmm. because we want it to we want it to be Bluetooth and want it to connect to us um, automatically. Mm-hmm. We have to teach them that you know there's there's small differences in the different glucometers. This one's very easy to use, so it's not a lot of training. But we do make sure that they're comfortable with the devices and all of those pieces. Mm-hmm. And do you do uh, do you include type one and type two diabetic? Monitoring or we all do. insulin dependent? No, we, we include type okay. 1 and type 2. Okay. All right. That sounds good. So it's kind of amazing what kind of technology is available in the home um, these days. So we talked a little bit about the training. I'm curious, if you do have to send someone out, do you partner with like a, a visiting nurse or is this your own staff going out if you have to to do some training? If it's in the state of Mississippi, it's our own staff. Okay. So we, um, because we have such a large center for telehealth, we have a very large clinical staff, and we also have our own IT staff that are employed here at the center for telehealth. Mm-hmm. So we have the resources to send out if we need to. Now, if we were to look at another state, we would partner with a local medical center or or someone if we had to to get that that visit mm-hmm. completed. And then, just out of curiosity, because you now have so many of these visits under your belt. Have you had to make any changes, or are there some lessons learned along the way on the technology side? Oh yes, when we um, when we did the pilot in the Delta that ended this last September, we were using larger tablets. They were called Gigabyte tablets. Mm-hmm. They were the big twelve-inch tablets, and they did not have Bluetooth capability. They everything was tethered. Mm. So 
that is not the right way to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the majority of our technical calls came from in that program is someone would unplug the cable or something would happen to the cable. They didn't know which one to plug in. Mm-hmm. So that was the biggest piece is we switched to all Bluetooth um, and got rid of the tethering. And we also went to a smaller form factor. So we went to the iPad mini. And the reason for that is is multifold. But one of the main reasons is the portability. So now that we have pediatric patients on our program, it's nice for them to be able to take their iPad mini and their small glucometer to school with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you have a big, heavy tablet, a big 12-inch tablet that's harder to carry. Mm-hmm. The iPad mini is very easy to carry. Mm-hmm. And the iPad also, the Apple product also allowed for a, a better user interface. So do you, have any, yeah, do you have any problems? Because I know a lot of times with diabetics, there's vision problems. Have you had any problems with your older patients seeing the smaller screen size? No, because we actually have the capability of enlarging the print, print. so you can okay. zoom in the print. Um, we also, if there's someone that is that can't read, so if there's someone that's illiterate, um, we have voice capability as well. So it will actually read all of the health questions to you. It will walk you through step-by-step step what you need to do to participate in the program. Mm-hmm. And what kind of IT team do you have as far as capability? I mean, I'm just thinking of all these connections and you know how many people's own. What kind of resources have you created I'm at the Center for Telehealth over there at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We have five full-time IT staff here Mm -hmm. at the center. Mm -hmm. Um, We have 55 employees total. We have five full-time IT staff, including a director. We also, we do a lot of training the IT department does with our clinical staff. Mm -hmm. So the majority of things that need to be done as a part of this program could be done by either our IT staff or our clinical staff. That's good. So we, we cross-train so that we have a, a, a large pool of people that can address these issues. Because we partner with Care Innovations on this product um, to provide the technology, they also have an IT staff and a clinical staff mm-hmm. that um, they have on tap as well. So mm-hmm. in addition to that, we also, because we're part of the Academic Medical Center, we have a very large IT staff at the um, medical center mm-hmm. that are available if we need them. We mm-hmm. rarely have to use them, but... Mm-hmm. It's, it's nice backup. to have that big backup. Yeah. 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 So w- this brings us to uh, the patients in, they're on the monitoring, there's data coming in, um, you're monitoring that. What kind of, ha- what happens? Because um, right now you're, 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 you teach the patients, they have the equipment, you're having data come in depending upon their treatment plan on a varying schedule. Do you have nurses that monitor the data and set like trigger points per patient or Talk to us about the monitoring part. Okay. So the monitoring, the program, and I'm, I'm going to back up just a little bit. The program is actually more than just the monitoring. So we have okay. data coming in constantly mm-hmm. um, through the blood glucose. Mm-hmm. and But we also, every day, these patients have to do a daily health session. So their, okay. their iPad alarms, they are asked questions um, about their health to make sure they took their medication. But they also receive short bits of um, education. So one of the big issues that we see with diabetes is the fact that even no matter how hard we try, you can't educate a patient about a chronic disease at discharge from the hospital or even, you know, once every three months in the doctor's office. There's just not enough time to educate patients on all they need to know. So we we educate them daily. We um, ask them health questions every day to make sure they're adherent to their medication regimen, that they're feeling well, that, you know, there's those multiple questions that go along with that. That data is transferred along with the biometric data to our center um, for telehealth, and we actually have a, a cadre of nurses that watch that data. The software through Care Innovations actually triages those patients 
depending on their answers, depending on what their biometric data was, depending on whether or not they even, you know, did their session yet. If they were scheduled at nine and they haven't, they haven't gotten on by 11, it notifies us so that we know, hey, this patient has not connected at their normal time. You need to reach out. So those patients are triaged in, in a, a, a stop, a stoplight type fashion. So the the patients in red, we have to we have to get in touch with them immediately. Mm-hmm. Those are patients that may have had a high blood sugar reading that was mm-hmm. abnormal, or a low blood sugar reading, or didn't take their medication, or something along those means. Um, then we have other patients that that are maybe starting to trend in a different way. Maybe their blood sugar has gone up just a little bit over the last three or four um, times. So those are things that we're constantly watching to see how we need to interact with the patients. Mm-hmm. So we have a staff of nurses that are here. We also have pharmacy support. So we have a school of pharmacy, and we pay for faculty time. So I have um, some of the PharmDs that are part of our school of pharmacy that are involved in the program as well, doing medication reconciliation and medication adjustments and teaching as needed. Um, We have dietitian support because we're part of the medical center. We have the support of the dietitian staff at the medical center that can help with um, carb control and different diet education for the patients as well. We have social work support. Right. If they just fall out, do you also have the capability to do a telehealth visit with an endocrinologist? We do. We don't um, necessarily have to employ that. Usually, if they if they start to fall out, we, we reach out to them by phone. We reach out to them by video visit from here at the center through their tablet. Um, if they just completely aren't responsive, we'll reach out to their primary care physician or whoever their referring physician was to try to get in touch with them that way. Um, usually once they start connecting, they stay, they stay connected. They complete the program. It's the ones that weren't really engaged in the beginning that just mm-hmm. never really, never really start, never really buy into the program. Mm-hmm. Those patients are hard to reach. If they don't have, if, if, if there's no initiative on their part to try to be involved in the program, mm-hmm. they generally, it doesn't matter who you connect them with. They mm-hmm. don't stay involved. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the million-dollar question, CW, we've heard yep. about this fabulous program. I know originally it was a pilot. You said the pilot closed in September, so I'm interested yes. in two things. What did the pilot show, and how? what has been the next step post-pilot for sure. your program? So the, the results of the pilot, because it's an IRB-approved study, the results of the pilot are not back yet. We do have preliminary data from the first 100 patients in the first six months of the program. Mm-hmm. So the results from that that preliminary data actually are what prompted us to move outside of just the pilot. But we saw a decrease in hemoglobin A1C of 1.5 points. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw a minor weight loss. It wasn't meant to be a weight loss program, but mm-hmm. we did track their weight. Um, we saw, we, we actually were able to diagnose nine cases of diabetic retinopathy mm-hmm. in the first 100 patients. So these are patients that would have otherwise not been diagnosed and would have likely lost their eyesight over time. The biggest one that most people are interested in is we had zero hospitalizations, zero ER visits for these 100 patients for six months. So these patients, we kept them from going to the hospital for six months for 100 patients. Well, now the hospitals are penalized for readmission. I'm sure that's very valuable, let alone the patient side of it. It is. We saved about 10,000 miles for these patients from having to travel to physicians. Or to providers' offices. Yeah. So, Did you concurrently look at how, the dollar savings? Oh yes, the first 100 patients, first six months, we saved 339 thousand dollars. Yeah. In healthcare costs. Yeah, that's. Um, right. Our division of Medicaid extrapolated that to if 20 percent of the Medicaid diabetics in Mississippi were enrolled in the program and had similar results, it would save 189 million dollars a year. Isn't that crazy? 
Yeah, that's that crazy. is wild. And that's just diabetes, just 20%. Mm-hmm. And what did you see with medication compliance? I would imagine if some of the patients had a daily reminder or check-in, even electronically, that would prompt much better compliance. Average compliance with, with diabetes patients who aren't on the program is around 60%. Mm-hmm. Ours was 96%. Wow. That's just amazing. Adherence to the, it is. And the um, compliance with the daily health sessions was 80, right at 86%. Mm-hmm. So these patients did these health sessions every single day for a year. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was a it was amazing. But I think it's 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 three things. We we call it the three E's. You get education. So we have to educate these patients in small bite sized pieces so that mm-hmm. they can understand it and comprehend it. Mm-hmm. We have to engage them in their care. So they have to be a part of the team. Someone mentioned earlier they want to they don't want to be on the sidelines. They actually want to be engaged in their care. Mm-hmm. And then we have to empower them with the tools that they need to take care of themselves. We are not going to be able to manage chronic diseases in this country or any other country, but in this country specifically, following the same model we always have. Mm-hmm. I mean, one once every three month visits to to an endocrinologist or even a primary care physician is not going to get us what we need. You need that real time intervention so that when they eat the piece of pie that they know they weren't supposed to eat. And then they get a call from Nurse Cindy, they know immediately, okay, I can't do that again. I need to do something differently. Right. That's what changes behavior. Yeah. Now, another key to maybe not your pilot, but certainly going forward, is reimbursement for remote home monitoring, which is really inconsistent across the United States right now. And we're both in the telemedicine business, and certainly there we we know there's telemedicine friendly states and there's telemedicine friendly not states. But um, can you just talk a little bit about reimbursement for home monitoring? I understand this is a study, but maybe just in your own states, was there cost to the patient? Did you have to get extra legislation? Kind of a whole ball of wax around the reimbursement issue. So, in our state is very much telehealth friendly. We score an A from the American Telemedicine Association and have consistently for a while. We There was no cost to the patients for the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, in 2014, we were successful in getting remote patient monitoring paid for by all in-state payers. So, mm-hmm. Medicaid and all the private insurers who insure patients in our state have to pay for this, have to pay for remote patient monitoring. Are there separate CPT codes for remote home monitoring now? There are, yes. Okay. All right. So no cost to the patient. Did you have to do anything with legislation or did you start the study when you had parity law in your state? We started the the study when we had parity law, but even we did not bill any but any insurance or the patient for this pilot program. Just we all shared the cost of Mm -hmm. uh, the cost and the burden of of doing this program ourselves. But now that we have expanded outside of the pilot, Mm -hmm. we do bill insurance. There still is not a charge to the patient, but we do bill insurance and they're required to pay for this Mm -hmm. through Senate Bill 2646, which Mm -hmm. was passed in 2014. So is the reimbursement like a monthly monitoring fee as opposed to an each it's like a program fee for month or how does it's that actually a, it's a daily monitoring fee that we okay. bill monthly. So you only bill for the days that are actually monitored, which in our program is every day. We expect the patients to do their daily health sessions mm-hmm. um, and, and deliver the data and we, we take action on it. So it's a, it's a daily monitoring fee, but it's billed monthly. Okay. Very we drop good. the bill monthly. Okay. Very good. So let's talk just a little bit about uh, uh, can you were how does a patient get discharged or have you had pay, what happened at the end of the pilot to those patients at the end of the pilot those patients went back to um being cared for at North Sunflower Medical Center the majority of them had their diabetes under control and knew how to you know knew how to take care of themselves from this point forward mm-hmm. in our current program so we 
after we finished the pilot, or even before we finished the pilot, we expanded this throughout our state and are actually um, working with some payers outside of the state to provide the service as well. So we're, like I said earlier, adult and pediatric diabetes, heart failure, hypertension, multiple mm-hmm. other diseases. The patients, as they finish our program now, we found that after about four months, they really have started to change their behaviors and are really on top of their care and know how to take care of themselves. So after four months, roughly, the patients, the technology comes back, goes back to Care Innovations, but we keep them enrolled through a portal so that they're able to communicate with our staff and able to get some of the education that they used during the um, remote patient monitoring. They're actually still able to get to those um, different videos and different pieces of technology. We do that through our portal in Epic. So how many... um... How many sites do you have now? Originally, you just had the one Sunflower Medical Center referring you patients, but how many now are identifying patients? The majority of the patients that are enrolled currently come out of our medical center, but we have, okay. we're have we receiving referrals from all over the state, state right now. That's what I would imagine once somebody's heard about this. We are. We're receiving, and I think a lot of people are waiting until the, the final results come, but a good many of them aren't. Medicaid, the Division of Medicaid here in Mississippi, as well as Medicaid Managed Care, is working with us to actually, they're going to identify the patients and connect us with their primary care physicians so that we can work together. The key to this is all identifying the patients and then working with their primary care provider to get them enrolled. Mm-hmm. So, they're, I mean, people all over the state are referring it from a provider standpoint, but a, the payers are actually really pushing to help us get these patients identified. They're not sharing the patient data with us, but they are sharing that, you know, provider Dr. Smith and Bentonia has 300 patients that would qualify. So we go reach out to Dr. Smith. Because I would imagine if they're the one footing the bill and they have the claims data, they can certainly identify where their pockets of trouble are or who the, yeah, they know that information. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Certain way you got to get it. Yeah. We're also working with a payer out of state. So that is just interested in in, in piloting the program with heart failure patients. So they've identified about 400 patients in Alabama that we're going to um, enroll in the study after the first of the year. Okay. So I know one of the benefits of having you talk on the air with us, Michael, is to kind of pass along some lessons learned too. I mean, you certainly were a trailblazer in this particular um, diabetic telehealth network, which has been established and now you're expanding it. But in hindsight, were there some lessons learned? I heard one was the technology change. Were there other lessons learned for um, other people that you could maybe pass along that are thinking about doing this? I, I think one of the big keys, um, besides connectivity, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, connectivity is an issue across the country, mm-hmm. making sure that you have a way of connecting these patients and their data back to wherever that data is going to be mm-hmm. analyzed is of key importance. I think education, education of the providers on what this service is and what it isn't is a huge piece. So that's something that we're working on now is making sure that everybody understands what we're doing. We're not taking these patients away from their primary care mm-hmm. providers. What we're doing is intensive management. Yeah, it's and. Right. It's, a, it's an additive. Yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's not right. an or. So making sure that people don't fully understand that is, is huge. I would say that's probably one of the bigger ones. But patient identification. I think a lot of health systems will think that they know exactly who their patients are and who their primary care physicians are. I think once they start digging into it, they'll find out they don't. they may not know as much as they thought they knew about the patients and who their PCPs are. And the other piece is, you know, we've gotten offers from payers to to have their medical directors write the orders for this mm-hmm. and almost ex- not to exclude the PCP, but it kind of does. Mm-hmm. One of our big takeaways, and we've done this the whole time, but one that I would recommend to everyone else is 
never lose the PCP connection in this. Mm-hmm. You have to be connected with the person that is tasked with taking care of them every day. Yeah, because if, it's the whole idea not, of a medical home. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, it's great that, you know, uh, a payer's medical director could write you an order for a thousand patients. And, you know, for us, unfortunately, right now, volume is what drives the payment around this. Mm-hmm. But I will, I will, I will forego the volume. I actually in, am willing to have that volume come slower and make sure that I stay engaged with the PCP. That is, that is number one for us, making sure that we are keeping these patients with their PCPs and giving them the information they need to take care of the patient. Well, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with continuity of care, too, because if they do have to go back in, guess what? They're going to go right back where they live. They're not going to show up the university from, you know, way south or whatever in the Delta or whatever. So um, for a number of reasons, keeping the primary care in the community is probably really key for this kind of a program, too. So those are good. So listen, um, CW, we're almost out of time. If time flies by, Michael, you've been such a wonderful guest. I often tell people, you know, we talk about uh, statistics and how big the problem is and what our resource capabilities, but you know what? Our listeners over time remember stories, and it is the stories that people share with their providers and their family members and things like that without um, violating any patient names. Is there any, I'm sure you've had a a number of success or probably pretty dramatic patient stories in regards to this uh, diabetic telehealth program. Could you share any? I would love, there's, there's two that I'd love to share with you. Okay. And, um, one, I can actually, I won't share last name, but I can share the first name. She's mm-hmm. given us releases to share this information. Um, but the first study would be, that, I mean, the first story would be that we have a, one of the participants in our diabetes telehealth network study was the father of a hospital administrator that we're familiar with. And he was enrolled in the program. And this family consistently went out to Sunday dinner, just like a, a lot of people in the South do. Mm-hmm. After church, went to Sunday dinner. And their routine was they always had pecan pie at the end of Sunday dinner. So about three weeks into the program, it came time for Sunday dinner. They had Sunday dinner. Um, the son was noticing that his father was eating less. And it came time for pie, and the, the, the father passed on the pie. And his son was extremely concerned. What's wrong, Dad? You always eat pie. What's going on? He said, well, if I eat this pie tomorrow, Nurse Cindy's going to call me. So go. he knew that Nurse Cindy was going to call him and tell him, you know, when his blood sugar was high, was going to call him and and counsel him on the the right way to eat. <laughs> well, I love that on. story because in the so, south I mean, across our state, yeah, we're all hardwired for Sunday dinner that's and behavior pie. modification right there. Absolutely, yeah, that, that, talk about a change in generations of wiring us. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely, and the other is um, a, a patient named Miss Annie, and she she was one of those patients that got into this program and had no experience with technology, did not know anything about the internet, did not have the internet, didn't have a smartphone or a computer, anything in her home. And once she got into the program and got engaged in the program, now she's been one of our big, biggest success stories. She has she has decreased her um, need for medication and has gotten much healthier and lost weight and actually now rides her bicycle to the local library and blogs about diabetes care and remote patient monitoring. Wow. So we took we took someone who had never... All she knew from diabetes was that her, her family members had this and that they had bad outcomes, and she thought that was what was in store for her, um, potentially losing limbs or eyesight and then dying. And what she does now is, you know, she's riding bicycle and, you know, evangelizing to others what it can be instead of what they think it could be. So 
those are two of the biggest stories of, of mm-hmm. changing lives and changing behaviors. Yeah, you created a leader, not only a compliant patient, but actually Absolutely. a community leader out of the program right. in that particular case. So certainly noteworthy and relatable stories. We so appreciate that. Well, we're at the end of our time, CW. And Michael, um, I know that as a result of the program, there will be patients that want to get a hold of you or administrators or primary care providers or whatever. So would you like to share how people might reach you in your program? Sure. They can reach out to us at, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. They can contact us at, I'll give them my email address. It's madcock at umc.edu. That's probably the best way for them to reach out to us. Okay, that sounds great. And so, CW, we're at another one. Michael, thank you so much for being our guest. I'll look forward to seeing you next time I'm over in Jackson. And uh, congratulations on um, a very innovative and successful program. We'll all look forward to you reaching out to contiguous states and being a spokesperson in the country for how other people might replicate it to help more patients. Well, Tanya and CW, thank you for having me on, and we always enjoy telling our story. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again for your time. And if you've not done so already, in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast, where it lives on iTunes. You can subscribe to us, and that way, each week, the new episode is downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. We hope you turn around and click share on on the podcast as well. You may just be putting some information. Clearly, this is a topic that affects a number of people. I promise you, even if they haven't talked to you about it, you've got a number of people in your loved ones and good friends who are dealing with diabetes or at least have somebody that is. So please hit share, get the word out about resources like this and uh, some of the innovations that organizations like the University of Mississippi Medical Center are doing to tackle such problems as diabetes. Tanya, it's always a pleasure. You always bring great guests here to us on the show. Thanks for being a partner. Make sure you go by and check out Women's Health telehealth at womenstelehealth.com. Learn more about how they are using telehealth to deliver high-risk maternal fetal care to patients in need. I look forward to having you back. It's going to be the holidays next time. It's going to be the holidays next time we see them. So have a great afternoon, everybody, and go light on the pup compa. That's right. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.